Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said amen And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. For the right interpretation of all of the images that will follow, as we have been observing throughout our sermons on Revelation, it is very important that we understand the visionary scene. I could borrow the language of the theater. We have to understand the setting of the stage before we can rightly understand the uh, actions of the actors upon it. And so we are here endeavoring to understand this visionary scene. And it is nothing less than a tabernacle or temple scene that is set before John. John's position is very important. John is, as it were, standing at the very door of the tabernacle. He is able to look inside, but he's also able to turn and view the courtyard and to look down, if you will, from the holy hill of Zion upon the Roman world and to see the activities done there as well. Currently, 
John is turned to view the interior of the tabernacle. Central to all of this is the divine throne, in ancient times represented by the Ark of the Covenant. The throne is not vacant, but God sits there, ruling and governing the things that he has made. And in his right hand is the scroll of history, in particular that history as it applies to his church, his special providence toward his church. We have now taken a larger view of the throne than what we had in the fourth chapter, and we find there a fuller presentation of the persons occupying that throne. It is not only God the Father, but also the Lord Jesus Christ, portrayed as the Lion and the Lamb. And we find also the Lord Jesus Christ having the fullness of the Spirit within him, portrayed here as seven eyes and seven horns. We find the triune God upon the throne. Immediately surrounding the throne and as if growing out of its borders, we have the four cherubs, the ministers of the church. Just as in ancient times, the cherubim were one solid piece of gold with the mercy seat, and as it were growing out of it, so it is the ministers of the church receive their calling, their unction, their spiritual power, and their message from Jesus Christ, who is the mercy seat. Before the uh, ark and uh, outside of the orbit of the four cherubs, there is the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick, the seven churches illuminated with the Spirit of God. Also in this circuit, there are 24 thrones, and upon those 24 thrones, 24 elders. In ancient times, the Levites and the priests had been organized into 24 courses so that there would ever be someone to attend upon the work of the Lord in his tabernacle. Now they're not serving in 24 turns, but all together, representatives of all of the people of God, waiting continually upon the Most High, representatives of all believers, all of the believing priest kings. This brings us to verse 8. The, I, I've given you this long description to remind you of the setting because we, have, we now find uh, in the hands of these four living creatures and the 24 elders more in the way of tabernacle furniture. And it's important that we understand that if we're to rightly interpret it. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. You remember the setting here. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken the throne out of the hand of the Father, and he is going to reveal it to his people upon this occasion. The four and twenty elders and the four living creatures all fall down and worship God. 
But we see that they have been fitted by grace for the doing of it. Uh, portrayed once again in the symbolic imagery of the tabernacle. They have received hearts. Hearts that are ready and prepared for the praise of God. And they've also received golden bowls full of incense as uh, representing their prayers or hearts that have been turned to pray. It's the operation of the Spirit of God when we are moved to prayer. He is called in the prophecy of Zechariah the Spirit of grace and supplication. This week and the next week, I thought that we would meditate upon the service of incense in the tabernacle. It will give us a, a fuller view of what's taking place here in John's vision, but it will also give us an opportunity to learn more about prayer. Last week, we talked about the object of our prayers, the recipient of our prayers, and that is the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about the Father being uh, normally addressed in our prayers, and it is fine and fitting that it be so, but that is never to be understood to the exclusion of the Son and the Spirit. The triune God is the proper object of our worship, and thus the proper recipient of our prayers. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. We travel back from John's time, oh, about 1600 years, to the time of Moses when God first prescribed both the altar of burnt incense that golden altar that was placed inside the holy place and its service. Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon. Of shittim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be. And two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. The top thereof and the sides thereof round about. And the horns thereof. And thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it. By the corners thereof. Upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. I don't know about you, but I can say for myself that for years I skimmed over these descriptions, not taking very much time to try to understand the construction of the furniture of the tabernacle and its possible meaning. But these are uh, these are things of great interest, and so we 
We'll take our time to work our way through this. Almost all of this appears to have symbolic significance. But I'll tell you a true thing. If you understand the tabernacle, its furniture, its imagery, and something of its meaning, it'll do a lot to explain a lot of the Bible to you. And if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, the stronger your grip upon the tabernacle and its furniture, the stronger your grip will be upon the meaning of the prophecy. And so I think it will be time well spent. First, we turn our attention to the construction of this precious altar. It's described as being that of Shittim wood. There are two leading candidates for the possible identity. The, the Jewish rabbis are almost unanimous. They think that this is cedar, uh, a wood that's well known to us. They say that it was a, a wood ancient and durable, and thus, uh, I'm sorry, excellent and durable, and thus very useful for the construction of these fine pieces of furniture. The durability is is uh, highlighted in the Septuagint. Quite literally, it's called timber not subject to decay. So it's not called shittim wood in the Septuagint. It's called wood or timber not subject to decay. Now remember, this is a translation that goes all the way back to the 4th century B.C. So it's a very ancient form of interpretation. Those ancient Jews wanted to highlight the durability of this wood. It would last for a very long time. A great many other authorities um, relate it to acacia wood, which was a very excellent timber. Uh, many think that this was the, uh, the identity because Arabia, the place where Israel at this time was dwelling, abounded in acacia wood. It also was excellent, useful for making timber, and also durable after its fashion. But I do I think we do well if we take away as a lesson from the Shittim wood that it was a durable wood, useful for the making of this kind of furniture, not subject to a rapid decay. The dimensions of it uh, are described in this way. The top of it was a square, each side being a cubit. A cubit uh, is roughly 18 inches. If you can visualize in your mind a standard ruler and then cut it in half and add a half to what you've got there, you'll, you'll be able to visualize about 18 inches. It's about the distance from my elbow to the tip of my finger. Uh, this might surprise you. It was not very big, was it? When you think of that being one of its sides and then square. It's not a very big piece of furniture. Its height is, uh, is two cubits. If you've ever seen a yardstick, you'll have an idea of about how tall it was. Again, not, not very tall, probably not uh, quite to the waist of a uh, maybe an average sized man or something like that. So it's relatively short and it has a relatively small surface area but altogether adequate for what it was supposed to do. For after all, all it was supposed to do is hold a bowl full of uh, incense that would be uh, smoking. From the top of it, from its, the four corners of the top, there are four horns that were arising. 
So imagine, as it were, some sort of a, a protrusion. Many of the ancients describe it as an obelisk. That's not a word that's very familiar to us anymore, but if you've ever seen the Washington Monument, you'll know and be able to visualize what an obelisk looks like. The uh, uh, either curved horns or straight ones, like an obelisk, were coming up out of the four corners of it. And the whole of it was covered in gold. Beautiful, excellent, and costly. It had also, around the top of it, a, uh, a golden crown. So if you can imagine it, um, if you had your incense bowl, you couldn't just shove it off of the side because uh, rising up around the sides of it, there was a bit of a crown. It formed something of a lip or an edge that would present, prevent things from falling off. But being a crown, it was not just functional, but it was beautiful, a glorious thing. Coming out of the four corners of it, there were four rings, also covered with gold. These rings had a function. They were to receive uh, staves or poles, also covered with uh, gold, that were used for carrying the, um, the golden altar. You should understand and remember that it wasn't just the Ark of the Covenant that was carried upon the shoulders of the priests, but... Uh, but this also was to be carried. This was not to be placed upon an ox cart or some such thing and moved. These, these things were to be carried, these precious holy objects. This would include also the table of showbread and even the menorah. The menorah didn't have rings, but they would put it on some sort of a bar that was carried between uh, the men together with its uh, implement. So these were carried things. And finally, we have here the description of its position. It is in the holy place. It is immediately in front of the, uh, the veil that led into the holy of holies. Here described as the place where God would meet with them. You remember that it was said that God would meet with them between the cherubs. So his presence would be over the Ark of the Covenant and that he would speak to them from that place. A great many interpreters think that uh, when they departed from Sinai, and it will be said that uh, Moses consults with the Lord, many believe it's here. This is where God had promised to meet with Moses. Not that Moses would go behind the veil, but rather he would stand on the one side, here beside of the golden altar, and that God would speak to him from this place. If you think of it, it's altogether fitting when you think of the symbolic significance of this altar and its incense representing prayer, God would speak to him and he would uh, respond and speak to God in this place. When we think of the significance of these things, uh, we do have to make a distinction. And here I want, to be, I want to be very careful because I don't want to exceed my mandate as a minister of the word of God. Some of these things we can prove with certainty their meaning because the scripture in other places will interpret it for us. So, for example, the significance of the incense in this service is not hard to arrive at because we can turn to Psalm 141 or Revelation 5 and it will say these are the prayers of the saints. 
And so the uh, significance is uh, unfolded for us. We don't have to guess. Some of these other things, uh, we might say, just become occasions for meditation upon Scripture truths. We can say for certain that we're meditating upon a Scripture truth. And I'll show you something of how that works as we travel to this place or that place in the Bible. And these, a lot of these things will become occasions for meditating upon these things. But whether or not there's a direct connection between the symbolism and the, and the tabernacle and those scripture truths becomes very difficult to prove with any kind of certainty. So I do want to make a distinction between these types of things. Much of what we'll do this morning is more in the way of a meditation that becomes occasioned by these symbols more than something I would say are doctrines that are proven by these symbols. Do you understand the difference? So some of this meaning we can be sure of. Some of these things have simply become occasions for meditation on Scripture trees. When we consider the altar itself, it seems to me, and I'll tell you why my, my thoughts are directed in this way, but it seems to me that the altar itself is symbolic of the person of Jesus Christ. His person. You say, Pastor, why would you say that? You remember uh, the Lord Jesus, and uh, you can find this in Matthew 23 in the midst of his reproof of the scribes and Pharisees. He talks about their um, deceitful use of vows. And in the midst of that, he gives us a principle. I won't go into the text, but he, he says that it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. It's the altar that makes the gift holy and valuable in the sight of God. And when we think of what, what it was that made uh, Christ's sacrifice or even now his intercession valuable in the sight of God, it is the altar of his person. And most, and here I just say his person, we might even say most specifically his uh, divine nature. But I, I do think that there are indications here of things that might relate most properly to his uh, humanity. But once we descend there, uh, up to this point I'm pretty confident how these things might relate to his person. Again, we are in, in more in the realm of meditation. Interpreters have thought of how this Shatim would might, might point to his person. Many see in this an indication of his human nature. That he is, as it were, sprung up from the earth, a real human nature. You remember that the, uh, that the womb of a woman is described as the secret places of the earth. So here he is, as it were, a root out of the dry ground of humanity. And yet, inasmuch as he is, is sinless, excellent, and durable humanity, very much like the Shatim one, Although the Lord Jesus Christ died, he was not left to be subject to corruption, but has been raised to an incorruptible and immortal life. His humanity has proven to be most durable indeed. When interpreters have thought upon the Shatim wood and his divine nature, they thought it was some sort of an indication of his eternity. This durable wood was a representation of his eternal nature. When we think of the horns, 
which in this place do not appear to have been uh, been functional. They seem to have had a function with respect to the brazen altar, but not here. Uh, here they appear to be uh, purely uh, ornamental or symbolical in their significance. Horns from ancient times were always a sign of power. Kings and governments are talked about in this way. We've just seen the seven horns of Jesus Christ. Because when you thought about the strength of an animal, its ability to fight, to fight as an aggressor or in defending itself, its power was in its horns. You might think of rams charging one another and the strength of their their strength and their ability to fight is in their horns. So it was always an ancient symbol for power or strength. Inasmuch there are four here, some have uh, thought that it represented Christ's ability to save to the uttermost parts of the earth, his power extending to the four corners of the world. Inasmuch as this is an altar of prayer, his efficacy uh, with respect to his prayer pertaining to peoples, to the four corners of the earth, that his uh, intercession is worldwide and extending the world over. This altar is uh, covered over with gold. Interpreters who reflected much upon his human nature saw in the shittim wood perhaps a sign of his humiliation, something sprung out of the earth, but perhaps in the gold a sign of his exaltation. Some others have constructed the same truths, but in different ways. They saw in the bronze altar of the courtyard his humiliated state, sacrificed for sins. But in in the golden altar, his exalted state, ascended into heavenly places where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And now he is crowned, very much like this altar. Some others have seen another special reference to his divine nature, glorious and excellent. It is carried about not on uh, dead things like carts, but on living things, the shoulders of men. Interpreters have looked at this and seen that... um, This altar, whether stationary or whether it was being moved, was always in the midst of the people of God, as Jesus Christ ever lives in the midst of his people to make intercession for them. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is, as it were, carried about from place to place by living ministers, the ministers of the word, sacrament, and even prayer. This altar is located in uh, the presence of God. In our vision in Revelation chapter 5, the veil is removed, so it sits immediately before the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ in that place of intimate and familiar fellowship with his Father. But let me say, in in all of this, and I hope that you understand that the the interpretive principle I'm trying to communicate. Everything that we've said here is a scripture truth concerning the person of the the Lord Jesus Christ. The 
I can't say that this altar proves these things or even is necessarily connected to these things, but rather these things have become an, uh, an occasion for meditation upon these things inasmuch as we do have some indication that these things refer to his person. Look forward to Exodus chapter 30, uh, 30 verse 34. Chapter 30, verse 34. And here you'll probably want to have your outline in front of you as well. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, Stacte, and Anica, and Galbanum, these spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. Here we touch even more closely upon our vision in Revelation chapter 5, because you remember the elders and four living creatures are portrayed as having bowls, golden bowls, and all of the bowls of this altar were golden. All of its instruments were, uh, were golden. So they have golden bowls full of this incense. In the interpretation of the passage, notice in verse 34 it says, Take unto thee sweet spices, samin in Hebrew. This is probably a... Um, a general term for the spices that are following. So it's not a specific thing itself. You might even translate it. Take unto thee sweet spices. By that I mean, and so on. By that I mean stockte and anica and galbanum and so forth. Um, this appears to be related to the Arabic samam, which basically means to smell, to have a smell or a scent to it. And so these are uh, described here as sweet spices, probably even more properly aromatic spices, spices that have a very strong scent to them. The first specific that we're given is translated here, stakta. I've given you uh, the Hebrew there, nataf. Some debate over what this is exactly, but it does appear to be some sort of sweet-smelling gum from a tree or from from a plant. The reason I say that is nataf in its verbal form means to drop. Have you, have you ever seen, maybe been walking in the woods and seen a tree that's, um, that is, as it were, sweating its gum? There are some trees that do this sort of thing where you'll see outside of it um, its uh, internal gum running down uh, the sides. The, uh, sometimes the myrrh tree is called a tree. It's hard to describe it. It's 
somewhat like a tree, somewhat like a bush in a, in a lot of ways. But the but the mercury will do this. It will sweat its gum. That was always thought to be the most excellent or the most precious of the myrrh gum. If you had to cut the tree uh, to release it, that was thought of as being less precious. But what they would do is they would take this gum, they would uh, desiccate it. They would, they would dry it out of all of its uh, moisture and then grind it into a powder. And this would be burned. And of course, myrrh was, was uh, famous for its aroma. I'm not sure if I've ever smelled any or not. But if you've read the Bible, you know that this was famous for being precious and uh, sweet smelling. We have here, um, if some of you have ever heard the word stockta, probably uh, none of you have heard the word anika. Shehalet uh, in Hebrew. It's basically a, um, a shell, an aromatic shell. And that's even what anika means. Here the, the, uh, the uh, King James translators have basically given you the thing. There was, a, there was a certain sort of mollusk or shell animal that was found on the shore of the, the Red Sea. This is going to seem very strange to you, but what they would do is they would take these mollusks and they, would, um, they, were, uh, they had horny protuberances and they would scrape the shell. And uh, these things, when ground into a powder, also had a very uh, sweet, aromatic scent when burned. So far, so good. We have good reason for, um, uh, for thinking that we're on the right track with these. Galbanum is much harder. Chelbana in, in Hebrew, here translated uh, galbanum. It was a strong-smelling resin. Uh, reason we're pretty sure it was some sort of a resin or gum itself is it seems to be related to halev in Hebrew, which means fat, fatty substance. Uh, here a gummy substance uh, extracted from a, a plant. Some say the ferula plant, which was also very abundant in that region. The, the difficulty comes, uh, many of the ancients said that this was not a pleasant smelling thing in and of itself, but rather foul. Others say that it was very useful to preserve the precious sense of other things. So it was foul smelling in and of itself, but if it mi mixed with other things, it could be uh, sweet smelling when put all together and useful for preserving the sweet smell of the, of the other things. And finally, we find that these sweet spices were mixed with pure frankincense. This we're very familiar with and is mentioned frequently in the scripture. It was also a, a resin and it had a uh, basam fragrance to it. From, from the composition or the elements, we come to the composition. And we notice that the scriptures say that these were taken in equal measures. Uh, it says each of them shall be in a, in a like weight. So apparently, however much you made, you would take an equal proportion or weight of each one of these substances. And then they were uh, carefully blended together according to the perfumer's art. Here called the apothecary's art. But they were... Uh, people in ancient times who were perfumers. And what they would do is they would take these 
substances and they were very skilled in mixing them together to produce the proper end product. They were, in some ways, chemists. The scriptures say here, King James translation is that these things are tempered together. Quite literally, they were salted together. Salted together. And this has occasioned questions. Um, is this literal? In other words, was, uh, were these things mixed together and then salt was added? Which has been perplexing to interpreters. Why would you add salt, which is not thought of as having any sort of a scent associated? It has in all ages been famous, however, for its preservative powers. It might have a symbolic significance. Not so much that it would smell like anything. But symbolically, it is a preservative. Some have thought that this is figurative, that these various things in their powder forms were salted together, dashed together, as it were, in some sort of way. We are then told that it, all of this was beaten very small and very fine. So when you think of an incense, you won't necessarily want to think in terms of, um, I've seen modern uh, incense bowls where the things look like almost like shred or grounded leaves. This is probably finer than that. This probably looks like dust or uh, powder. The result of this is described as a blend that is pure and holy. So the very best of these substances were taken. They were uh, put together according to the art of a professional apothecary, somebody who would be very skilled in doing this. And um, the end result is holy. This was to be a distinctive scent they are forbidden to imitate it. Uh, it says here that they will be cut off if anybody makes the like of this and uses it for personal uses. Uh, this language of being cut off, I, I do agree with Bannerman that it seems that this is the language of excommunication. So in other words, if you in your house looked at this mixture and decided you wanted to make a little for yourself, it could be excommunicated for this. This was holy unto the Lord. This mixture and its scent was set apart and only for God and only for his tabernacle and its service. This mixture, as our text tells us, would be laid upon this altar. So remember, it's immediately uh, before the place of meeting, the place where uh, the priest would meet with God. I, I would encourage you to do something if you, uh, if your mind returns to it this afternoon or in the coming days. Uh, next week, if the Lord wills, we will talk more about um, the uh, service of incense itself. We've looked at the elements. Next week, we're going to look at the action and what it might teach us about prayer. But I, I do think it would be a good thing for you to think about the items themselves, the altar and the incense itself, and think about what this might teach you about prayer. And meditate upon these things, as the people of God in ancient times meditated upon these things to learn spiritual truths and to work them more deeply into their hearts. Clearly here we have a unique and unparalleled aroma. It's an excellent smell, and it is singular. They were not to make anything that smelled like it. So this is a unique smell, a unique scent. 
We know that this is representative of the prayers of God's people. But we know that our prayers in and of themselves are yet defiled and mixed with many impurities. And so um, this is also representative of our prayers mixed with the intercession of Jesus Christ. And only when it's mixed with his intercession does it arise up into the nostrils of the Father as a sweet and soothing aroma. Some interpreters have even uh, thought that the galbanum being in this mixture was significant inasmuch as they thought that this is the human part, foul-smelling in and of itself. But when it is mixed with the others, namely that which Christ provides, it becomes a sweet-scented thing in the nose of the Father. I commend these things to you for your consideration. We'll talk more about them next week when we come to the action of the service. But in the meantime, consider these things that I say. And the Lord grant the understanding in all things. Meditate upon the sweetness of Christ and his intercession and how it is important, how it is essential that he participate in our prayers, that they are to be accepted and heard on high. Let us pray together.